I've actually been encouraged by testimony, really have changed lives and, and changed habits in prayer, as well as changed belief and trust in the power of prayer as we've looked at God's Word and we've allowed some of these uh, vignettes or case studies of real people with real situations, real struggles, praying to God and, and relying on Him. And this final case study we're going to look at this morning is, I think, ties sort of a perfect bow on the series and especially this last section, praying obstacles into opportunities. Because with prayer also comes obstacles to prayer, but what we often don't realize is those same obstacles can actually be opportunities to grow in prayer. So let's not let anything be an obstacle this morning, uh, so let's get to pray first. Father, we ask this morning that you would remove any external obstacles from our hearts and minds, Lord, the things that sometimes weigh us down or the things we put our false hope in, Lord. Instead, help us focus this morning on your word, which says, it says in Joshua 1.8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. So you may do everything, be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will be prosperous and successful. Help us meditate on your word this morning, Lord. We may be careful to do everything written in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you pray, is God going to change things? What do you think? If you forget to pray, is God going to change things? Yes. Some of you are where is it going with this. I don't want to answer this question. I fear the scorn I will receive if I get this answer wrong. You're in a safe place, friends. Safe place, all right? But these are two antithetical, diametrically opposed questions that sort of tentatively receive the same response, right? And so it's easy to come to the conclusion that no matter what, God changes things. So why pray then? And that's a dilemma that many who believe strongly in the sovereignty of God face. What is the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is that God foreknows all things. He knows everything ahead of time. He foreknows all things. He is in control of all things and thus is surprised by no thing. God's word backs us up. We have Proverbs 16.9, which says that in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Or what about one of a, a favorite verse of maybe many of you and of Christendom at large? Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so God has plans for each of those plans, which, as Job says back to God at the end of the book of Job, Plans that cannot be thwarted. And so we are comforted and we can trust God when our requests, when our pleads for help don't actually change things in the way we prayed for it. And we talked about that uh, last week, right? We may not be ready for an answer to prayer. So God means to ready us. God sometimes wants to change, to transform what we pray. And then we talked also about how God wants to sometimes give us something greater 
And that's why sometimes our prayers are met with silence, because in God's sovereignty, he may have one of these things in mind for us, which is better for us. On the other end of the spectrum, though, we have others who believe strongly that humanity's freedom and responsibility to pray shapes the future. And, and we have some uh, future-shaping prayer promises that Jesus gives us. Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whatever. Or John 15, 7. If you remain in me, Jesus says, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. We have these promises. You can't overlook examples where prayer seems to shape the future, like God plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, back in Genesis 18, but Abraham pleads with God, even really negotiates with him. It's kind of used car salesman-like. And he negotiates, he says, well, God, what if there are 50 righteous people left in the city? Will you spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, sure, okay, I'll spare it. And then he gets down to 40, and then 30, and then 20. And he gets God down to 10 people before God's like, okay, I'm cutting this off. So his prayer seems to shape the future. And then we have King Hezekiah, who was told by God to get his affairs in order and pick out two or three of his favorite funeral songs worship songs, because he's going to croak. Only that Hezekiah plead with God, and then God gives him 15 more years. Now, what's that? And so, two weeks ago, I exhorted you from Luke 22 to pray with discernment, pray specifically, remember, and pray big, because God uses prayer to change things. So it becomes difficult, you see this, to fit these two things together, these two concepts. And theologians and philosophers have come up with ways to try to fit these things together. Right? God's being in control with sovereignty, human responsibility, freedom, uh, concepts called compatibilism, the open view of God, paradox indeterminism. We're going to go through those this morning. No, we're not going to go through those this morning. But I also don't want to be someone who says, that's stuff, all academic stuff, you know, like we hate science and academic stuff. I don't want to be that guy because each of us should strive to mentally know the person and the ways of God. That's what it means to love him with our minds. Having said that, when you go down that road and, and, and you're trying so hard to find a system to fit what God says in his word, and you're trying to find it so carefully and define it so uh, minutely, it starts to trivialize God, doesn't it? And not only trivialize God, trivialize our lives and what really matters. Because lest we think this doesn't matter to real life, it does. Twice this summer, while back in the States for most of July, I encountered it mattering to two different people in my life. First was a family member. There were lots of kids around, as there often are in my life. All right, Uh, I'm grateful when you and I have a one-on-one conversation. Otherwise, you know, it's just interrupted by children, transformers, and Thomas the Train cars. But there was a quiet moment where this person turned to me and, and, and they explained how much the sovereignty of God meant to her. She has a busy life. She has lots of kids. And she, she simply can't and doesn't think of everything to pray. And so she rested in God's sovereignty and knowing the future, 
in control of all things, and nothing surprises him. She rests in that, but she said, Ryan, I admit that I oftentimes just end up leaving everything up to the Lord without really praying about it. Later, I encountered another person who had been praying sometime for a good friend, a co-worker as well, that that person might trust their life to Christ. And they were praying hard for them. They believed that God commissioned him to pray for, to plead, to bother God until something happened in this person's life. And that they were the one. He said, I mean, I just know that they have no other Christian influence in their life. So I've been praying like crazy every day for the last year, but nothing. Nothing's happened. I'm starting to get frustrated, agitated. You see, there are different sides of the spectrum here, but with real problems when it comes to prayer. And my response, friends, was the same for both. I pointed each of them to Psalms 4 and 5. Turn with me there also if you would. Psalms 4 and 5, if you have a Bible with you. Now thankfully I do actually do some preparation for these sermon series. I don't just do it during the week, but I kind of take some time away to pray and to study and consider. And so I actually already come across this little book by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who's most famous. He's a, a professor up a regent in uh, Canada. But he's most famous for uh, writing this Bible paraphrase or almost kind of like a commentary called The Message. But he also wrote this little tiny book called uh, Praying with the Psalms. And it's actually out of print now, so I had to find it in some you know, antique bookstore or something. But Peterson is convinced that these psalms, Psalms 4 and 5, go hand in hand. That one is to be prayed in the evening and one is to be prayed in the morning. And it sort of represents this rhythm of life. And I want to press this a step further and say that together these two psalms can help turn the obstacle of responsibility and freedom to pray, which clashes with God's sovereignty, into an opportunity to use both to grow our prayer lives. Psalms 4 and 5. So let's read this together. Psalms of David, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself the godly. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when they have their grain and their wine that abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And then Psalm 5, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. 
For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. We'll stop there. Hopefully you'll notice what connects these two psalms. One is the rhythm of life, right? Evening and morning. And connected to both periods of the day, there is an appropriate sacrifice to be made by the worshiper. Did you see that? I will make my sacrifice. happens in both of these psalms. So we're going to talk about those two sacrifices made during these two periods of the day in the rhythm of life. First, your morning sacrifice. Trust by bothering God. Trusting God by bothering Him. Psalm 5. All right. Now, first of all, I want to point you to some words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 62, he says this. This is, this is amazing. Check this out. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I, the Lord, have set or appointed watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give Him no rest. Give the Lord no rest. Until He establishes Jerusalem, and makes it a praise in the earth. This is a radical statement. God, unlike most fathers, likes to be interrupted by his children so much that he literally appoints people to bother him. He he chooses people. He actually cuts down on the unemployment rate in, in Judah to say, why don't you guys just bother me? You're just going to bother me. I'm going to give you money. I'm gonna, uh, you're going to get food. You're going to bother me. You're all your life. Don't stop. Give me no rest until I fulfill my promises. I know I uh, spoke about George Mueller a few weeks ago, and especially the discernment this 19th century man gave to making requests. He used discernment to make these requests, to make them rightly, and he was very specific in his request when he was praying for the orphanage he established, as well as uh, the church in which he preached. And what was interesting to me is that I, I looked back over his memoirs this last week, and you know, I love the title of his memoirs, which are A Million and a Half Answers to Prayer. Because he recognized his life was more about God and him answering prayer than it was about what he did. Which is pretty awesome. But anyway, in the margins of this book, starting on page 62, on six different occasions in the margins, I just wrote, he just wouldn't leave God alone. Just this little, wouldn't leave God alone, wouldn't leave God alone, wouldn't leave God alone. This guy, he just bothered God. So if God didn't answer George Mueller's prayer the first time, he would just ask more people to join him and then start praying in the morning, at lunchtime, in the afternoon. He would just bother God more. And friends, this is what Psalm 5 is pushing us to do every morning as our morning sacrifice. First of all, what do we see here in Psalm 5? First, we see that morning is the best time to pray our groans. Look with me in verse 1 here. On into a little bit into verse 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. How many times do you find yourself during the day giving one of these? Right? Or if you're a little shyer. How many times do you find that during the day? And friends, we have to learn to turn our groans and our sighs into prayers. 
Because we're in trouble if we don't. We really are. It starts to affect us profoundly if we don't. What happens if we don't? Well, first of all, let me just give you an illustration of one of three things, if not all three, happen. And you probably know this from experience. When we run ragged, practicing the fine-slash-comical art of trying to constantly put out fires. Right? You're just frustrated. Oh, man, I've got, got to take care of something else. Then after putting out a fire, only to see someone come out with a kerosene bottle and put more kerosene, right? What in the world? <laughs> and that's when lethargy and apathy sets in. You give up because you realize, oh, it's useless. Anything I do. Then when you combine apathy with responsibility, if it's still your responsibility, but you can't do anything about it, people keep messing things up, what does that turn into? Bitterness. Bitterness towards the person who's creating the chaos in your life or towards the God who's ordering the circumstances. Pray your groans. And then after groaning, watch. We see in verse 3, we, we can groan because we pray to a king, just as David addresses God as king here in verse 2. And by the way, the New Testament twin, if you will, to Psalm 5 is in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, Lord, your kingdom come. Come, kingdom, invade this world, which is not as it should be. That's what kings do with a gesture of their hand. They, they make the world a right because it isn't as it should be. That's what God does. Every morning this week, I really tried this. I tried to write down and pray my groans and then watch. And then just watch. And I tell you, friends, God used this not only to work behind the scenes in ways that I couldn't imagine, but God also used it to make my, my heart and my attitude more tender, more tender towards those whom my groaning was directed <laughs> And that's what we learned about, right? We spoke about in Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 a month or two ago that prayer makes a difference because, if nothing else, we know that prayer makes a difference because it changes me. I watch him change my heart to become more tender towards people. So watch. Groan and watch. Bother and watch. And then the end of the day comes. And so we get Psalm 4. Your evening sacrifice. Trust by resting, by resting in Him. See that rhythm to life? You're groaning, you're working, and you're trusting and resting in Him. That's your evening sacrifice. We go to Psalm 4, we look in verse 4. David says, be angry. This is fascinating. Be angry and do not sin. So we see this anger, first of all, an agitation. It could also be translated. Frustration as it mounts. That's natural, right? As a day winds down, the watching and the working that have been wed to the groans in the morning, some of those groans have not been answered. And so we have to do something with that anger, right? with that agitation, as it should be probably translated. What's fascinating, friends, is that God doesn't ask us to mask our agitation. He doesn't say hide it because you're a Christian. He doesn't ask us to mask it, but to slowly put it to rest on our beds. We're at bed at night to slowly put it to rest. How do we slowly put agitation to rest? This is an important question. 
So important that David even tells us to ponder this on our own beds in our hearts, right? How do we put agitation slowly to rest? First, don't sin. All right, Paul is thinking of this verse when he says in Ephesians 4, 26, do not let the sun go down on you while you are angry. And so give the devil a foothold in your life. Put you in a place of temptation, a place where sin is more likely to happen like that. So first of all, recall that when you're tired, you are more prone to complain than to be thankful. All right, this should be an obvious. We don't think about this, but look at this. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Right, this is basically what David's saying is there's going to be a lot of people when you get to the end of the day who are going to be Christian Eeyores, right? Well, I'm praying, but nothing seems to be happening. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of our... Now, that might be you, or you might be the opposite, which is like the angry Christian ticker. <laughs> you go off. But either way, it's a problem. You, you should know that at night, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, you're going to be more prone to complaining than you are to be thankful. So don't choose bedtime to bring up complaints to your spouse or to a flatmate. All right? And it's natural to do this, right? I mean, especially if you're married... You, You've often missed each other most of your day, right? You've been running these parallel lives. And you're thinking, well, now that we're getting ready for bed, brushing teeth, now's a great time to unload my problems. It's not. This is not the time to complain. Because this is when complaining, it inflames agitation. It inflames anger. And then what happens? You know this. You, you stay up later talking about it. Right, you're in your bed, you're talking about it, you're up late. And then people compete about their complaints at night, I find too. Like, oh, mine was worse, mine was worse, this is worse. And you're like one-upmanship and you just don't sleep. And then you can't sleep because it bothers you. It gets into your dreams that happen to you. And the end result is the next morning you're either still wound up about it or you're dog-tired from it. So that your morning prayer becomes distracted scattered, just foggy. You see what happens there? How we respond to life and to God at night affects the following morning and vice versa. There's this rhythm to life that David is expressing here in the Psalms. So second thing, second way you put agitation slowly to rest in your bed is rather than complain, remind yourself of what trumps circumstances. What's more true, what, is, what trumps our circumstances? David gives us three things that trump circumstances, three truths. First, communion with God trumps our circumstances. Look at me in verse 6. There, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now for David, this is a prayer. Why? Because God has only assured communion with those who obey God righteously and regularly. But as all of us have experienced from life, that is not easy, to obey God righteously and regularly. We fail. And so for David, it's a prayer. Please be with us, God. But for us who have trusted our lives to Jesus Christ, 
The light of his countenance is upon us forever. This prayer is turned into a promise through Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. I'm just going to read these. I'm not going to make any commentary on it. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, he's saying, look, the law is coming to an end. And God is perfect. You're sinful. You can't see the face of God because you'll die. You're not perfect. God is. But that was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened to the idea of grace, a free gift. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, people who don't trust Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And listen to this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So the grain or the wine that David talks about here that others party with and that maybe sometimes we're lacking, laughable compared to having any time, anywhere access to the light and the glory of God. We have that. So there's more joy in our hearts. What else trumps circumstances? The second thing, the peace of forgiveness trumps circumstances. David says here in verse 8, In peace I will lie down and sleep. God alone, through Christ, can give you the power to forgive others and so you can have that rest in your life and you can forgive knowing that you're forgiven. Also remind yourself that this, of the safety of God's sovereignty which trumps circumstances. He says also in verse 8, You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Notice it's not the 10,000 person army outside his tent that makes him feel safe. And remember, he has this. He's got like thousands of soldiers there to protect him. Right? He's got the pad. I mean, that's more than the padlock or the high-tech security system. He says, him, Lord, you alone, alone being the key word, makes me able to feel safe. Because you have a plan. You're in control. Friends, a lot of us want to hold on to the belief that what we do, what we think, what we pray determines wholly the outcome of our lives. Not only does this not jive with Scripture, but it's foolish. I mean, you wouldn't want that. Who would want this? Now, I'm still a young pup trying to rely on older folks uh, who have a bit more knowledge of what is wise and what is foolish in life. And one of my favorite living pastors, Tim Keller, once said in a sermon he was giving on Proverbs 16 that he said, probably only one quarter, one fourth of what I have prayed in my life, sorry, one fourth of what I prayed in my 20s, he said, came to fruition. All right, so one quarter of what I prayed in my 20s actually happened. And he said, it was about a third, a third of what I prayed actually happened in my 30s. And maybe about half of what I prayed in my 40s actually happened. He said, I like to think that as I got older, I was able to discern what God wanted a little better. And so I got to about half of my prayers 
coming to fruition in my 40s. And his conclusion was, praise God. Praise God that most of the time, God doesn't do what I ask. You see what I'm saying? Who would really want to fully determine his or her own life? Ponder that. Do you want that? Because do so is saying, God, I think I know a little better than you. So after praying, your kingdom come all morning, at the end of the day, we must be able to pray, but your will be done. Your will be done. Guys, I believe this is good counsel through God's prayer book, the Psalms. To pray according to the rhythm of life that God has established in the morning, praying to the king your groans, your sighs for change. And in the evening, giving your heart rest from agitation through restraining your tongue and reminding yourself of communion with God, the peace of forgiveness, and safety of sovereignty that trumps all else that's flying around in your life. To get a hold of this, I once heard a professor who was speaking at my seminary, guest speaking at our seminary named R.B. Kuiper put it this way. I love this analogy, so I wrote it down. He says, I liken God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling, right, and over a pulley above. Right, so this sort of thing. If I wish to support myself by, by those ropes, I must cling to them both. Right? If I cling to one and not to the other, I will fall down. As I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination is chosen, and so on, I also read the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibilities as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I'll see both strands of the truth are, after all, one piece. Because both are meant for us to pray. Both are meant for the rhythm of life. And I think our biggest trouble here, friends, is that either out of stubbornness, maybe out of laziness, is that we'll tend to pray in the habit and with the attitude that we've always had. All right, especially if you're a Christian and you know some of these things, you're going to tend to pray the way you've always had, either believing if I don't pray and do it, it's not going to happen, or I'm too busy, you know, God will take care of it. I just know God will take care of it. I don't need to worry about it. That's my concern when it comes to this, friends. We're going to tend to walk away from here sticking with what we've always stuck with. More simply, we want to continue to do things our way, not God's way. We're not content with playing the part, right? Playing our part in the rhythm of life that God has established. And no one knew this rhythm of life like David. I want to end just talking about him. David, who gives us these psalms, prayed the rhythm of life. First of all, here's a guy. Think of this guy's life, David. He knew God's sovereignty. Being chosen among his seven brothers to be the king, and himself the least likely. Right? He was the runt. He was the runt of the litter. He's out there shepherding. Well, Jesse, his dad, brings in the other seven brothers. You must mean these guys to be the king. But God chooses the runt. 
He, but then he exercises personal, the next time we really see David, he exercises his personal responsibility through freely choosing to stand up for God and God's people by taking on Goliath. So he gets out there and he chooses to exercise that responsibility. Then he's got to trust God's sovereignty again when he spends years running from a megalomaniacal, paranoid king. He spends years running from this guy, Saul, even though God had chosen David, even though David won battles for Saul, and even though David had spared Saul's life when he could have killed him easily. He has to run from him. Trust in God's plan, his sovereignty. But then he has to exercise personal freedom when he decided to commit adultery. Right? And with a woman and have her husband killed. He takes matters into his own hands. And he experiences God's sovereignty when the, that son, born out of sin, born out of that adultery, would become the next and wisest king in all of Israel, in all of its history. And God's sovereignty working good out of evil. He exercised freedom again. You see the pattern here. I'm going to keep going. He exercised freedom again after his son Amnon rapes his half-sister, and David gets angry, but doesn't really do anything about it. So another one of his sons, Absalom, is appalled at this, rebels against David, his dad, gets an army together, and eventually over time he gives up, and he returns to the land of his father. But you know what David does? Nothing. He doesn't confront him at all about his rebellion. So we see, we get to the end of his life, which if you know anything about David, you'll see in all honesty, has been ransacked by weak leadership at the end of his life. And then God exercised another sort of final sovereign choice in his life. David, you're not going to be able to build this temple, but your son Solomon will. He'll receive the blessing. And then to add insult to injury, David is charged to do all the fundraising for the temple, right? So you're not going to get to see it, David. Well, what's, this is terrible, right? Imagine doing fundraising for like the, one of the largest projects in a nation, but you're not going to get to see it. That's guaranteed you're going to die beforehand. However, even though the circumstances of his life are in shambles, and God's final charge to him is an ignoble one, he is able to thank God for the riches that he's able to give from his throne, from his treasury. He blesses his son Solomon, and the last thing we read about David is that he prays, and then in First Chronicles 29:22, he eats and drinks before the Lord with great gladness. How can he do this? Friends, God wants to show himself great through his life. And friends, God wants to show himself great through our lives, even if you yourself are not great. And the circumstances that swirl around your life are even worse. So this week, I'm going to encourage you, grab a Bible in the morning, take 10 to 15 minutes, to read and pray through Psalm 5. Bother God and pray your groans. Then take 10 to 15 minutes on your bed at night to pray Psalm 4 and put your heart to rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer guide that are the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David, Lord, a man who understood the rhythm of life, the, the rhythm of choice and responsibility but only had those choices of responsibility because you and your sovereignty and your grace chose the run of the litter to lead a nation. Father, similarly in our life, we're going to have groans. We're going to have freedom to, to pray those groans. 
and to watch you work. Help us do that, Lord, every morning. And then in the evening, help us put our hearts to rest because we can trust you, Lord. Circumstances of our life don't outweigh the great truths of communion with you, of the peace of forgiveness we have through you, and the sovereignty that you have a plan. Lord, help us do something about that this week and throw ourselves in into the rhythm of life as you established it. Every morning and every evening. In Jesus' name, amen.